about writing and storytelling by an author, and he brought up what I thought was an interesting point. So interesting, I had to say that twice. <laughs> At least that's what the Lord willed. Um, but he said, when you read any great story in literature, you watch any great movie, you find that villains and heroes actually have the exact same backstory. The villain and the, or excuse me, the hero is almost always an orphan in some way. Um, they may have parents, but the parents are cold and mean and lock them in rooms. Um, but, but they're orphaned in some way, right? So think Batman, Superman, Rapunzel, Snow White, pretty much any Disney princess, Huckleberry Finn, Peter Pan, Oliver Twist, and the list goes on and on and on. They're all orphaned in some way. The villain, if you read carefully, will almost always have a physical indicator of pain in the way in which the author describes them. A scar on the face, or like in The Lion King, to go so far as naming him Scar. Uh, a limp of some sort, right? Captain Hook, missing a, missing a hand. Um, some sort of speech impediment. And what they're trying to indicate, he argues, is that the person, the villain, has a painful backstory, right? So the hero has experienced some kind of pain, typically being orphaned in some kind of way, but the villain also has a painful backstory. And he was arguing that the difference between the villain and the hero is one thing. It's how they respond to the suffering that they experience. The villain says, this world hurt me, so I'm going to hurt it. The hero says, this world hurt me, and I'm not going to let anything like this happen to anyone else. That's the difference between the hero and the villain. Both start out the same way. Both start out in pain and suffering, but how they respond to that determines who they are in the story. It's literally just how we decide to react to pain that causes us to be the, villa, the villain or the hero. This morning, as we make our way through Psalm 126, we're going to learn how not to waste our suffering, how not to waste our pain. We'll also see how Jesus reacted to the pain of this world and why he is our ultimate hero. Now, this psalm is very straightforward and requires very little interpretation. Um, this is my repayment for my one-hour exegesis a couple of weeks ago. So I want you to take the time of this sermon and that sermon divided in half, and we're back to the average, okay? As promised. But I'm just going to walk through its plain meaning, and then I just want to draw out a couple of ways this psalm applies to us this morning. Psalm 126 can be broken down into three sections. First, there is a description of a past experience with pain and suffering, referring most likely to Babylonian captivity in verses 1 through 3. So there's a, a description of a past experience with pain and suffering in verses 1 through 3. Second, there's a short prayer, one-verse prayer, 
asking that God would restore his people back into one nation in verse 4. And then finally, third, there's a, a proclamation about the future based on God's deliverance in the past. In other words, the psalmist is saying, based on what we've seen God do in the past, we are declaring and believing that God will do that again in the future. So those are the three sections. Again, it's, it's a very simple, straightforward psalm. Um, we'll, we'll read through it as we go. When the Lord restored the fortunes to, of Zion, in verse 1, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. In this psalm, the, the psalmist starts out by saying that, that what God has done in, in taking us out of Babylonian captivity is more than we could have imagined, right? This is the stuff dreams are made of. That's what he's saying there when he says that we were like those who dream. Like we could not have imagined how amazing God's deliverance was. We, we couldn't have planned it. We, we couldn't have done it ourselves. There's no way to look back and say, man, look, look how hard we worked. We, we really put our heads together and, and got ourselves out of that situation. No, the only way in which they were delivered was by the hand of God. And they knew it. They knew it. This, this was more than they even dreamed of. Verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter. It's hard to laugh when we're enslaved. It's hard to laugh when, when the taskmaster is beating us, forcing us to do our job with less and less and less. And yet here, the psalmist is saying this, this deliverance, this pain and suffering that we have gone through, God has delivered us out of that to the place in which we are laughing now. That, that we have so much joy that we are, are, are light of heart and laughing. This is I want, listen, just a little side note. I love this about God. He, he doesn't want us to be these stoic, stuck-up people. He wants us to laugh. He's a funny God, right? We make our plans, and he does what? He laughs at them, right? God, God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be joyful. He wants to deliver us to have that freedom to laugh. And that's exactly what we see is happening here as they have been rescued out of this captivity. They are being brought to joy, to, to laughter. Our tongue with shouts of joy. That they want the people, the, the, the people they are, are, are just so, so joyous, it just, it just comes out of them. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever... Have you ever really understood the deliverance from your sin and it just caused you to shout. You just couldn't help it. You're just like, praise God. That, that's what this deliverance looked like. All the pain and suffering that they had experienced, they were now delivered from that. And they realized it. And when they realized it, they couldn't help but just shout about it. Like you say, this, this is straightforward. It doesn't take a lot of interpretation. 
what the words say is what they mean. They were laughing. They were joyful. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. In other words, the psalmist is saying, not only did we see it, not only did we shout with joy and, and laugh and just were amazed that this is beyond our wildest dreams, but the nations around us saw what God did. Even they testified that our Lord had done great things. The most mightiest nation of that time brought to its knees by God. Not by human rebellion, not by some scheme of man, but by the hand of God. And it was so evident that not only did his people see it, but everyone around saw it. And then the psalmist ends this section by saying, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Are you glad this morning? Are you glad this morning that you have been delivered from sin if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you tell people like this psalmist that the Lord has done great things for me? He's done wonderful things for me. And because of it, I am glad. And then he shifts in verse 4. He says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. For some of you in some of your translations, it might say, Return us from captivity, O Lord, like streams of the Negev. Now, for us who did not grow up in Israel, this reference that he's making here might not. So I thought, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. So let me show you a picture of what he is referring to. This is, this is one of those uh, valleys that, is, that he is referring to here that, that when the rain comes, this fills, right? 90% of the time, you can walk through it. People walk through it all the time. But when the rains come, because there's nowhere for the water to go, it's not going to be soaked into the ground, it, it begins to run down these, and all of a sudden, you can see how the water has cut over the years these grooves in the side of this valley. And so what the psalmist is saying here is he's using a word picture that, that everyone in Israel would have understood that, that when the rains come, the, the flood hits these valleys, and all of a sudden they are full, and they are rushing toward the Dead Sea. And, and likewise, he's asking God that while we who are celebrating in these first three verses the return from captivity, there are still some of God's people that are not here with us. They are not here rejoicing with us because they are enslaved by other nations around the area. And so the psalmist is crying out saying, Restore us. Bring, bring back your people into one place. And do it in such a way that it's like this mighty rushing river that, that all of a sudden it looks dry, but then it's full of people coming back to Israel. So he's, he's asking God to restore all of the people 
into one place. Third and finally, there's a proclamation about the future of God's deliverance of the past. And this last part is where I want to pull our application from this morning. Verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come back or shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, I want to I want to kind of draw our attention to two application points. I draw from these two verses. First, it is completely possible for us to waste our sorrows. It's completely possible for us to waste our sorrows. And and sadly, many of us are guilty of wasting our sorrow in life. We're guilty of wasting our suffering. Instead of letting our sorrows push us into a greater dependence and trust in God, we let them push us away from Him. You see, some of us just go out weeping. (laughs) Instead of going out weeping, bearing seed and sowing. We, We just spend our time weeping. Poor me. Our, 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 our focus is on us. Now, at this point, you may be confused thinking, how can, how can my sorrows bear fruit? Because that's, that's what the psalmist is saying here, is that, that when you go out like a farmer and you're sowing your crops, you, you're going to get a harvest. There's, there's going to be fruit that comes from that sowing if you do it properly. But he's he's also saying that 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 fruit is coming from our sorrows. It's coming from our suffering. And more to the point, some of you may be thinking, well, Dale, how do do you know I'm wasting my sorrows? You, You started this section by saying that some of us are wasting. How do you know that I'm wasting my sorrows? Well, I'm glad you asked. Flip over in your Bible for a second to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, I think we've got it up on the screen for you. And I want you to listen to what Paul says about our afflictions or our sorrows, and more importantly, how they can bear fruit in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this title. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now notice what Paul 
is teaching us here in these verses. First, again, I want to draw your attention to that title because it's, it's a beautiful title. We serve the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That, that's who our Heavenly Father is, Paul says. When we lean into him during our sorrows, he does what? He comforts us. But what are we to do with the comfort that we have received from him? Do we sit back and go, oh, this is so wonderful to be comforted by God. This is amazing. This is awesome. I'm just going to revel in his comfort. No. No. We have received this comfort for him so that we can comfort others. The the reason I know some of you are wasting your sorrow is because I see you struggling to comfort others. And the reason you struggle with being able to comfort others is because you have not been comforted by the God of all comfort. So when others are suffering in sorrow and affliction, instead of entering into their sorrow, you just avoid them. That's that's too messy. I just I can't I can't I can't deal. Can't enter into that suffering with them. So I'm just going to avoid them. And in some ways, that's better than the alternative. It's not good. Please don't hear me say that. It ain't good. But in many times, it's less damaging to the person than what I see happening a lot, which is people entering into that suffering and telling them that they just need to get over themselves and just move on. Because that's what I did. Why can't you do that? Because they haven't experienced this comfort from God. Instead, they've been leaning into themselves and self-sufficiency rather than God-sufficiency, rather than the God of all comfort, comforting them. They look at that person who is suffering and who is afflicted, and they're like, suck it up, buttercup. Get over it. Let's move on. Haven't you learned by now? Why do they do that? Because they've never experienced the God of all comfort. How do you know that, Dale? Because it says in the text, if you have, you then give what you have received. But if you've never received it, you cannot give it. That's how I know so many are wasting their sorrow. Because God is putting them into situation after situation after situation. Hoping that they will lean in to him. That they will take the comfort that he offers rather than leaning into self-sufficiency thinking, well, I've got this. I'll just get over this. I'll work harder. I'll read my Bible more. I'll pray more. I'll do it myself. You can't comfort with comfort that you haven't received from your heavenly father. Now listen, you can do it for a little while. 
we can fake it pretty well. But you can't fake it in your mind and in your heart when you're walking away going, I wish they'd just move on. I wish they would just get over this. You can't fake it when a week, a month, six months, a year goes by and you're sitting there frustrated going, I'm throwing my hands up. I don't know what to do with this person. But when you've experienced the comfort from God for a week, a month, six months, a year, a decade, a lifetime, you can turn around and give that same comfort back because you know you've received it. The Christian that wastes their sorrow will become hard-hearted, dry, bitter, and definitely not producing any fruit. There will be a a lack of growth in their relationships. They will always just be the bare minimum. So it's possible to waste your sorrows. But secondly, and and this is the, the most intriguing part of these verses, is that the psalmist is saying that joy is produced by the sorrow. Now that seems counterintuitive. That that the joy is produced by the sorrow. Now many of us, we like to think about verses like Psalm 35 where it's like, okay, we we just got to get through this suffering and then joy is going to come, right? Suffering lingers for a while, but joy comes in the morning, right? And and these verses, though, they go beyond that, and they say that joy is actually produced in the sorrow. You see, sowing seeds in sadness and grief can actually make you a more joyful person in the long run if you're not wasting your sorrow. Now, you may be wondering this morning, well, how, how can that be? And as Christians, we look to Jesus. We, we can see this in, in at least two ways. There's probably a lot more, but just for the sake of honoring my promise to you, I'm going to look at two ways this morning. Because I think they're the most important. First, Jesus is the ultimate example of sorrow producing joy. Jesus is the only person to literally bring joy to us out of his sowing and weeping. You see, in Jesus, his weeping was substitutionary. It's a fancy word, but it it just means Jesus took our place. The, The punishment meant for you and for me is taken by Jesus instead. You see, his weeping was the ultimate sowing in tears. And through his sowing comes the ultimate harvest of joy. And that's what should empower us. That's what should enable the Christian to view their sorrows in a far better way. Second, when we look to the cross and we realize that Jesus died so that we may live, we, we look to the cross and see incredible grief and sorrow 
that he endured to bring us joy, taking on the full wrath of God upon himself so that we don't have to. This is, this is what enables the Christian to sorrow in a far better way. And why, you may ask? Well, let me give you three ways looking to Jesus can help us sorrow in a better way. First, when we look to Christ's suffering, we won't suffer in guilt. When we look to Christ's suffering, we won't suffer in guilt. See, I think one of the reasons why so many people waste their sorrow is because they're trying to suffer in guilt. Because they think they're suffering because God is punishing them. But the cross reminds us, when we, when we look to the cross, the cross reminds us that Jesus took all of the punishment meant for me upon himself. So we know as Christians, the suffering and sorrow we experience is never, ever, ever, hear me, ever, because God is punishing you for some sin in your life in the past or in the present. Never. You know why? Because that's a heresy to believe that. Jesus atoned completely for your sin. He took the punishment completely upon himself. If you think you have to add one single thing to the cross, you do not believe in the gospel. That's a heresy. Christ alone saves us. Christ alone justifies us. Christ alone absolves our guilt for all of our sin. So, so we do not, as Christians, suffer in guilt. Because we know it's never because God is punishing us. As Christians, suffering well means never sorrowing and guilt. If we did, that would mean the good news really isn't that good a news. Second, when we look to Christ's suffering, we won't suffer or sorrow in anger or self-pity. You see, many Christians waste their sorrow by getting angry toward God for letting it happen to them. They, they wallow around in, in self-pity and, and poor me and look what God is putting me through. They waste their sorrow by thinking that God has turned His back on them. Instead, when we look to the cross and we see how God suffered more than I ever will for me. 
His sending his son to die and suffer on a cross allows me to someday be with him and love him forever. Looking to the cross, reminding ourselves of this truth, this reality, is the only thing that's going to get us past the anger and the self-pity. Third and finally, when we look to Christ's suffering, we can suffer in patience. Remember what it says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When we look at Jesus on the cross, I, I often try to put myself into the disciples' place on that dreadful Friday night. The, 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 the person that they thought was the Messiah, come to rescue and redeem God's people, is now hanging on a cross, dying in front of them. These, these guys had given up everything for Jesus. They left their families. They left their friends. They left their livelihoods, their careers. And now he's hanging on a cross. Worse, he's dead. The last thing they could have been thinking was that in just a few days, that Friday night would forever be known as Good Friday. I think if you would have taken a poll of the disciples that Friday night and said, hey, do you think in history this will go down as something that people will call forever Good Friday? No! How can anything good come from this? Don't you see what's happening? And yet, you see God works all things together for good. Jesus' death on the cross and your suffering, He works it all for good. And I, I can't explain it. I don't understand how that happens and how that works. I wish I did. But I know if He can take that and make the most amazing, joyful thing come from it. That he can work in your sorrow and your suffering as well. So when we look to the cross and we focus on Jesus' suffering, it makes us patient. The more we learn to lean on Jesus... the more patient and the more humble we become. And when we get to the end of that sorrow or that suffering, do you know what happens? It creates in us a Christ-likeness. It, it grows our ability to trust in God and not in our daily circumstances. When we sorrow well.
when we, when we choose to not waste our sorrows. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of sowing tears that reaped joy. And if you watch Him suffering and you keep your eye fixed on Him when you are suffering, your sorrows won't be wasted. And I promise you, because God's Word promises you, that they will produce the fruit of joy. Like I said in the beginning of this message, Jesus Christ is our ultimate hero. He experienced more suffering than anyone else ever could. Taking on the full wrath of God. And unlike the villains who took the suffering and tried to make others suffer, Jesus didn't want anyone else to ever have to suffer the wrath of God the way he did. And so he took our place. And he conquered death for those who trust in his finished work on their behalf. This morning, it is my hope that you put your faith in his finished work. If not, I, I pray this morning that you would cry out to God, confessing your need to be saved. And for those of you here this morning that are believers, perhaps as you were listening the, to the message this morning, the Holy Spirit began convicting you that you have been wasting your suffering. That instead of leaning into Christ with your sorrow, you have simply grown more self-reliant. Maybe you've even been blaming the sorrow in your life on your guilt for some sin, past or present. Being a functional heretic. Thinking that in some way you now have to atone for your sin in addition to Jesus' atonement. I pray this morning that you would confess and repent for wasting your sorrows. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for being the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. God, thank you for comforting us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Father, I pray that you would grow us through suffering. That we would bear much fruit for you, Lord. And Father, as we look out into the world and there is so much uncertainty, war raging in Ukraine, missiles falling, on American military bases and, and embassies in Iraq. God, it's easy for us to forget who is in control and to forget that you work all things for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purposes. So, Lord, I pray 
that you would grow us in patience this morning. Grow us in being able to trust you. And to not be shaken by our circumstances, our suffering, or our sorrow. And that you would take what was meant for evil and turn it into good in our lives. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.